BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, this is Devin Townsend from Strapping Young Lad, and you are listening to Talking Metal. This is Damon Fox from Big Elf, and you're listening to Talking Metal. You're one step closer to doom. Hi, this is Glenn Tipton from Judas Priest, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hi, everyone. This is K.K. Downing of Judas Priest, and you're listening to Talking Metal. So you know what to do. Crank it up. Hi, this is Ian Hill from Judas Priest, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Everybody, this is Rob Halford, the Metal God from Judas Priest, and you're listening to Talking Metal. I am Dan Lorenzo from the Cursed Hades Nonfiction and who knows what else, and I love the show Talking Metal, which is what you are listening to right now. Hello, this is Tony Iommi, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick, and you're listening to the best in rock, Talking Metal. The best hard rock, the best heavy metal, Talking Metal, a podcast hosted by Mark Striegel and John Astronomy. Available through iTunes and most other podcast providers. Feel the power. Feel the glory. TalkingMetal.com Hey guys, welcome to episode 301. We are very honored. On today's show, we have Bruce Kulik. Bruce Kulik has been one of my favorite musicians since I first heard of him in 1984. And then I went back and looked at his older catalog, his uh, stuff with Blackjack and groups like Meatloaf and the Good Rats. Bruce, of course, you guys know him from Kiss, and uh, he is one of the greatest musicians, greatest guitar players, and coolest people that I've ever met. A talking metal toast to Bruce Kulik. We are broadcasting here from Jersey City, New Jersey. Podcasting, I guess, not broadcasting. Yeah, podcasting. podcasting. It's kind of a broadcast, so to speak. But yeah, guys, we have Bruce Kulik. Bruce has a brand new album out. It's called BK3. You've got to go pick it up. It's in all your stores. A great company called Rocket Science is making sure it's in all your stores. And uh, you've got to check out Bruce's website, which is brucekulik.net. Actually, it's kulik.net, not brucekulik.net, but K-U-L-I-C-K.net. And uh, go there and find out all things Bruce. And use the links to actually buy Bruce uh, Bruce's new record, BK3, off of iTunes. We'll have those links. They open up your iTunes. We get a small percentage of that. And, of, of course, you help Bruce out because you're legally buying his music, which is what we encourage you to do here on Talking Metal. No doubt about it. Here's a letter. Mark and John, just want to drop you a line saying thanks for putting out a great podcast. I work security at a university here in Wisconsin, and they shut the campus down for the holidays. Not a soul around for over a month. I discovered your podcast a few days before the shutdown and was able to listen to you guys while I did my rounds. Uninterrupted. I would uh, load up hours of your episodes, and it would, m- and it made my nights fly by with all the great music and interviews. Keep up the excellent work, and is there any way in the future you could do one with Skele- Skeleton Witch, uh, which is a very good band out of Ohio? Sincerely, Doug Metal Dog Masters. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Man. We'll uh, keep Skeleton Witch on our radar, and... Uh, as you may or may not know, I used to live in Wisconsin for two years. Mequon, Wisconsin. So thank you. And let's get into uh, a little Bruce Kulik here. This is Bruce and Kiss with a little sound sample. 
Childhood's End on Talking Metal. I lived a life of illusion and you had your kicks. So what? There's nothing left to do. You and your obsessions and your crucifix as if What you just heard was Kiss off of the Carnival of Souls record, a great overlooked record. Bruce is going to talk about that record with us in this interview you are about to hear on Talking Metal. Without a doubt, and I have to say Childhood's End is my absolute favorite song on that record. Yeah, great song. Such a great song. And Bruce does a great job with that, as does Gene. Great, great Gene song. Let's get into the interview. Uh, We'll hear some new Bruce music. Uh, leading us in and leading us out of the interview. Sound good? Great. And I uh, want to thank Bruce Kulik for appearing on Talking Metal Live and also on Talking Metal. He's been a friend of ours Big for supporter, many years, yeah. and he's been on Talking Metal numerous other times as well. So thanks, Bruce. And we're going to get right into the interview after we hear a little Bruce Kulik music. Go buy this music, by the way. And here it is, BK3, Bruce Kulik.
What you just heard was brand new Bruce Kulik, Ain't Gonna Die. Bruce. Hey, how's it going? Great, Bruce. Great. Thanks for coming on Talking Metal. Uh, we are psyched to have you on. And I think I'm trying to think of the last time I saw you, Bruce. Was that when you played a gig at the Hard Rock Cafe? There was this uh, birthday party for some of these people I met at the fantasy camp. Absolutely. We got to hang, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Cool. Now, was that the same time when you, John, and Paul Stanley were up on stage playing Detroit Rock City? Mm. No, that, no, that was been the fantasy camp. Oh, okay. yeah, that okay. was the fantasy okay. camp fantasy before camp this, right. and then this was a lot of the guys from fantasy camp that rented out the Hard Rock Cafe for a huge uh, private event, and right. Bruce and you know a bunch of other great people came down and jammed, but yeah, we had a great fun. time. Yep. So, Bruce, congratulations on BK3. What an amazing record. Uh, we're blown away by it. Thank you. Um, believe me, uh, I think you can tell from listening to it that there was a lot of, a lot of energy and uh, effort and, and money, and uh, every detail was uh, carefully you know, kind of gone over with a fine-tooth comb. And, uh, you know, when you have a benchmark of, like, revenge as your favorite record and aspiring to do a solo record, as sonically as big and uh, musically entertaining as that, that's a that's a tall order, of course. So no I doubt, my, my work cut out for me. Cool. I mean, one the the first single off the album was "Hand of the King," which I heard, and for a split second, I was like, "That's Gene singing," but <laughs> no, that was not Gene singing. Can you talk about who actually is on the record, starting with the the vocals on "Hand of the King"? Right. Well, obviously, Nick Simmons is uh, Gene's son that everybody's kind of gotten very familiar with from the Family Jewel show. And um, Nick uh, genetically shares something there with Gene, although I, I see him also as a cross between Gene and Jim Morrison in a way. You know, he's kind of got this brooding, big, deep voice. Yeah, know? I was going to say slightly lower register, you think, yeah, than Gene? exactly. Yeah. And, and, and his kind of like uh, his style or like what he aspires to is a very interesting kind of eclectic blues thing. And I mean deep blues, dark, dark, deep south. You know what I mean? Wow. So when um, when Jeremy, who produced the record with me, and I uh, got together with Nick, and we said, so, you know, what's, what turns you on? What are you into? He started playing us a couple of bands that we were only mildly familiar with, but then he would talk about some of these blues greats from the Mississippi. You know what I mean? And, mm, and cool. that, that kind of shocked me that he understood so much about that. He also knows everything about every Kiss album that his father did. Really? Wow, <laughs> that's, that's cool. cool. Yeah. And then, um, obviously, uh, the goal was, once Gene offered him up for my record, was, okay, uh, what song could we have him appear on? You know, because at the time, that track, which became Hand of the King, was already cut m musically. It's just, you know, there was no uh, vocal or, or lyrics. Uh, there were some ideas from Jeremy and I, but it wasn't yet, done you know so he immediately gravitated to that one we gave him a choice of two hoping that he would bite on one of those and he loved that track and having his take on it especially having i mean he probably actually sang it and worked on it when he was 1920 he just turned 21 you know but i think there's uh there seems to be some experience that comes with uh the family i guess that he uh carries a lot of weight on that song and i'm i'm real proud of his contribution it's a great song, and I wanted to, to tell all the listeners that in addition to having people that the KISS fans and people that were fans of yours would expect, like Gene Simmons and Eric Singer, you have some other really cool people on this record, like Tobias from Ed Guy and Steve Lukather, and I think it's really cool that you have Doug from The Knack as well on the track yep. Dirty Girl. So tell us a little bit about 
some of the tracks and some of the special guests? Well, it was very organic how everybody got involved, really. It was always like a connection, a network. Uh, um, the song would need only a certain style of somebody, and, and there was never a master plan with this. It just kind of kept evolving. Uh, Gene was first on board. I knew John Karabi would be really easy because of working with, with the Union, and actually on my second solo record, Transformer, he sang a song for me. Cool. But... Gene offering up Nick, so now I have the the weight of the Simmons to kind of convince other people, which was great, and also the the weight of the Simmons to make sure I was going to do a great record because I didn't want to carry them along on my back and and not have something that was worthy of of their of their uh, you know fame and everything. So um, uh, Steve Lukather was really unusual how that happened. I kind of three quarters through doing the record, I realized I didn't have an instrumental, which was very odd especially since my other two solo records had quite a bit of instrumental work on it. Although this record, as you could tell, I wasn't trying to be, uh, you know, the, the guitar wank fest that some solo artists as a guitarist do, you know. Right. But um, the studio that I was involved with uh, that was recommended by Kenny Aronoff, who played drums on uh, the Between the Lines track with Lukather, he recommended this place called Steakhouse. And the next thing I know, I couldn't get in touch properly with the studio. And all of a sudden... Uh, I knew Lukather had something to do with it, so I contacted Lukather, and next thing I know, he's going to be like, well, here's who you, who you speak to, and let's have lunch. And then, of course, Jeremy heard of this, and him being the producer was like, you got to ask Lukather to play on the record. And I'm like, Arr. I was like freaking out because I have all this respect for Lukather, but it's not like I wrote the instrumental wanting to do a dueling guitar thing right. with somebody who is a monster on the guitar who absolutely scares the, the hell out of me, you know? But in the end, uh, that was what this record was about, was all these challenges and thinking out of the box and not not coming from a safe place. you know. So suddenly there's a guitarist that I, I think the world of who is very humble but a monster on the guitar playing uh, leads with, with me on the, on the track. Tobias came from my uh, Eric Singer connection. You know, Eric worked on Avantasia. Okay. And uh, I remember doing an event in Japan with Eric, and all of a sudden – while we were doing the autograph signing for the fans, you know, I, you know, they're playing obviously all Kiss related and, and Eric and I related music. And all of a sudden I hear this thing, I don't know what it is, but I go, Eric, who is that? I like it. And he goes, oh, that's Avantasia. That's that Tobias Samet guy. And I said, he's great. And then he goes like, you got to ask him to be on your record, Bruce. He's great. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Cool. So sure enough, uh, we didn't really know that he'd be singing the track that Eric actually plays drums on, but that's what happened on, uh, on the animal. So uh, as soon as I sent Tobias that song, you know, he was very excited about it. And then uh, he was touring in America with Ed Guy. I went to see the band. The next day we're working on the lyrics. Next day we're in the studio together. And then he went home to Frankfurt. It was that kind of, you know, uh, interesting that it was able to coordinate it like that. Now, Doug Figer, a little out of the box for some people, but, you know, because, well, Jeremy and I came up with this power pop tune that we heard it has to be a guy like from a band like The Knack or Cheap Trick or something like that. It can't be a, a hard rock singer, you know. And sure enough, uh, I met Doug at the fantasy camp. You, know, you guys know I've been involved with the rock and roll fantasy camp. Right. And, uh, Doug and I hit it off really well. I was always a fan of The Knack, and I was always uh, I didn't realize what a cool guy he was, and he's an equipment geek like I am, you know, totally obsessed with the guitars and Beatles stuff and all that. And once I presented the song to him, and he was like, uh, I love it. You know, I said, hey, you want to help out with the lyrics? And he said, no, you finish it. I'll sing it. And that's what he did. And he came in like a real pro. I mean, it's really sad. You know, everyone knows he's been uh, battling cancer the past few years, and uh, it's kind of really scary. But 
the guy really came in like a champ a few years back and just knocked it out. And uh, I'm very proud I have him on my record. I think he he really compliments the track. So you see each song and every special guest has their own little story behind it, you know. But um, mm-hmm. I use the word kind of an organic approach. There was no master plan. But obviously I was not afraid or shy to call out and and get a little help from my friends, you know. I love the way that this album has a diversity and it really feels like a, I'm trying to think of the right words to say this, but a full album. It's not a guitar player solo record in, in the, um, you know, usual sense where it's just a bunch of fast leads and it, a bunch of It almost of cool feels stuff. like a, you know, to me in, in some ways, an album that's going to be very appealing to people who love this work you did with Kiss. I mean, you mentioned right. Revenge earlier, and uh, yeah, you know, well, obviously, I hope to appeal to my Kiss fans. But the truth is, um, yeah, I have some. So you know, obviously, I have Gene there, but but I'm trying to make a rock record. Period. More like a a band, even though I'm I'm the only you know consistent guy on every song. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I appreciate the comment that it doesn't sound like a typical guitar wank fest. You know, because that is kind of like one of the um, stereotypes that I need to battle with BK3. Sure. Being a, a guitarist and not really being known as a solo artist, being the guy who's played with a lot of, you know, had had a lot of fortunate um, situations to, to, to be in, in, in the, one of the biggest bands in the world, and now Grant Funk, and working with Michael Bolton and Blackjack, you guys know my resume and it's all, yeah. I'm not the front man, you know, I'm I'm the guy doing, doing the uh, hopefully, in everyone's view, the quality guitar work, you know. But the truth is, this record was always about the songs and always about a, a whole cohesive, cohesive effort and not look at me, look at me, look at me riffs, as guitar players like to joke about. You know, I think there's plenty of my riffing and there's plenty of kind of uh, fancy guitar work and some, you know, Jeremy's very helpful when it comes to crazy things like wacky harmonies and layering the guitars in a very symphonic way. And there's certain tracks that uh, present that, but... It's still all about the songs and the performances. There's one track that I wanted to talk about, Bruce, and I know it's a sensitive subject, but um, you know, for all of our listeners who aren't aware, tell us about "I'll Survive." Well, you know, that was the first song written for the record, actually, and um, obviously the lyrics are very personal because not not many people can say, "Hey, yeah, let me tell you about that day I I got shot through the leg," and oh yeah, the other bullet just grazed my head and nearly nearly went through my skull. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, unbelievable. And right? even just. You know, saying it right now makes me go like, uh, that didn't really happen, did it? You know, and of course it did. But it was a very, very unusual random incident that that um, I was very fortunate with, even though some friends would say like, oh, man, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I go like, no, another couple of inches. Yeah. I really yeah, would have been insane. in the wrong place at the wrong time because I would have been dead or crippled. So that was a miracle. And um, I didn't take it lightly, obviously, even though it was pretty uh, mind-altering at the time. And... Uh, I remember being at home healing and, and kind of being self-reflective and holding my guitar and strumming a couple of chords. And the next thing I know, I'm just, these chords come out and I'm singing, I'll survive. Um, so it was a bit, bit inspirational for me. Now, turning that into something poetic lyrically, and I knew I had the concept in my head of a nice music track, of a powerful track in a kind of mellow Pink Floyd meets Aerosmith Beatles kiss, okay? If you want to know all my influences in that particular track but obviously writing the lyrics and telling my story without you know 
being too literal, but yet not being too, um, you know, uh, in, you know, where someone wouldn't grasp what really happened. That was the biggest challenge. But I, I feel like I, I was able to accomplish that. I was able to talk about some of the philosophical elements of going through something like that, and yet talking about, you know, the warm smoking gun that nearly took me away. You know, that kind of thing. So. Uh, quite a challenge, but I was really pleased with how that track turned out and, and the uh, production and the kind of sonics and the, the performances on that, uh, I'll survive. Yeah, and I love the vocals as well, Bruce. I always think it's a treat to hear you actually doing the lead vocal line. Mm-hmm. So well, uh, another you know, cool thing. It, it, it's not my, you know, uh, first of all, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in my guitar playing and my my vocals are, are you, know, you know, I'm not known for that. And when I can pull off something that fits me, that people can enjoy, that's a huge flattery for me, of course. But I've worked with so many great singers, I'm always feeling like, like the, 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 you know, like, like totally out of the loop in, in, in the talent department in that way. Uh, but uh, I have to thank Jeremy for pushing me and, and making me feel more comfortable. And my engineer, Brian Virtue, who picked a really cool like, kind of setting with my triple tracking <laughs> on that song that gave, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, my God, I sound like something 60s or 70s, and I like it. You know what I mean? Cool. So uh, th- there's something to be said about the v- vocalists finding the right effects and the right uh, sonic thing where, where their voice should fit in the track. And I... And I, my team did that for me, so I'm very, very grateful. Now, Bruce, you did a live gig at the Cat Club, and that's right. when Nick came up and sang with you guys. Now, I saw the video, but I wasn't sure exactly who all was jamming with you. Uh, t- tell me who was in the yeah, band. Uh, the band, I was very fortunate. First of all, everybody on my short list was available, so I was very happy. First of all, I'm always going to look to Brent Fitz to be my drummer. Right, I player. thought I saw Brent up there. Yeah, Brent, of course, plays on BK3 quite a bit, and uh, he's a dear friend, and... Uh, you know, uh, as soon as I asked him and he was in. And then, you know, I've, I've done some jamming in Vegas with the Sin City Sinners, which is uh, uh, a co- kind of a glorified cover band that likes to have special people, you know, guests sit in like like myself or George Lynch and people like that. So uh, Todd Kearns is, is the singer frontman of that group, uh, along with Brett from um, uh, Fast and Pussycat. And I liked my chemistry with Todd at any time I did that gig, you know, even though, yeah, we were doing Kiss songs and blah, 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 you know, but Todd's a big, big fan of that. And uh, I just knew that he would, he would really compliment me great on stage. So he was in, and then my bass player list was kind of short and I didn't really know that many, but one of my friends at the label, Ken Gullick, told me about Adam, Adam Curry. And I didn't, the name sounded familiar. I didn't recognize him right away. And then when we finally met up to get together the jam, I realized that I knew him from the L.A. scene. And I, and I, I don't know why I didn't ever think of him before, if you get what I mean. Right. The, wow. guy, the guy sings great, and uh, he, he he plays bass great. And uh, he actually came over like three times because the other guys lived in Vegas. So we only got one real rehearsal in. And wow. then, of course, uh, Nick came to my house one time, and we jammed with him just to get him uh, in the zone, and um, and then we had the, the short rehearsal and the gig, you know. But they, they kicked ass, and I'm real proud of all the YouTube videos that are out there of uh, my band playing, uh, you know, some of the Kiss classics from my era, and then, of course, two songs from BK3. Cool. Did the Family Jewels people come down and tape it? Yeah, the whole thing was filmed, including the rehearsal, and uh, apparently sometime, I believe, in April, there'll be an episode that deals with... Um, you know, you know, Nick's contribution and, and performing and everything. Great. Mm-hmm. Bruce, one of the, the Kiss albums that I feel is, is always overlooked, and it came out in such a, a strange 
way was Carnival of Souls, and it was right. an album that I, I thought had some really great songs on it. Can you talk about your involvement in that album and just how were you actually working on that as the guys had already kind of gone into the makeup phase and were, were reforming Kiss? Well, there, there, I mean, there was a real timeline there. The original it's Kiss. It's kind of hard for people to exactly know, but I'll, I'm, I'm uh, happy to share it with you. You know, um, we basically went in the studio uh, a few months after doing the Unplugged thing, which was, you know, the MTV Unplugged was terrific. Right. But the MTV Unplugged actually behind the scenes, not, not known to Eric Singer and myself at the time, was um, a testing ground for them to talk about um, doing the actual reunion tour. Because it was time and there was intent and promoters willing to put up the big money to make it a reality, you know. And I actually think in the end there was a certain bartering going on where it's like, all right, well, we'll do this MTV Unplugged thing, but we're going to do the reunion tour or we don't want to do the MTV Unplugged thing, if you get what I mean. Right. Yep. And it seemed like the right timing for them. Obviously it was. So look at the success of it. But there was no reason to talk about it until, A, the contracts were signed, and B, everything was really all the ducks were in a row, as we like to say, right? So in the meantime, of course, wisely, by Gene and Paul Stanley, you know, we're, we're moving ahead and doing another record. Why not? Uh, what better way to put the pressure on Ace and Peter to behave while the negotiations are going on? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> if they just stopped and were waiting patiently for them to agree to whatever it is that they want to agree upon, um, you know, it just makes them not look like... I just thought it was a wise business move to keep all the eggs in one basket, if you know what I mean. So right. the non-makeup band is moving forward. The potential opportunity of a reunion tour is moving forward. And then let's see what happens. So in the end, it was really, we were like, I would say, 80 to 90% done with Carnival of Souls by the time um, it was all like official and they broke the news to, uh, it was January of 96 is when they told Eric and I, uh, in Gene's guest house that, look, we're going to do this. It may only be for a year. It might not even last. Who knows? You know, it could be forever. We don't know. And, um, you know, of course, the record was finished. I got to say, it didn't help the, the end of the record of Carnival of Souls. I don't think Toby Wright, the uh, co-producer and, and, and engineer, cared about mixing it quite the same way after that, if you get what I mean. Right. Well, even the packaging was just so minimal, you know? Of course. Well, the reason... I was convinced it would never come out, and then how crushed I was that there were so many uh, bootlegs running around already. Right, that weren't was, really the oh, they were the finished versions of it, uh, right. They were terrible. And then on top of it all, um, you know, here was a record that, if you loved the album, you can thank me for my contribution. If you didn't like it, don't blame me, because I, I, I was just doing my job. They wanted a lot of heavier riffs. Than, I mean, when I say heavier, heavier than Revenge, if you know what I mean. Right. right. So we we moved ahead and did a very dark Kiss album, maybe darker than, than most, but that's not the point. You know, the whole idea was to um, move forward, and that was the path. I know Paul never liked the record, down, you know, talks it down now, and I, I, I he he's entitled to that opinion, but I was just following along what what they wanted, you know what I mean? Right. And uh, I know Gene isn't that embarrassed by it or anything, but by the time, it was almost a contractual thing to put it out. I mean, let's face it, the record company spent the, the money, and Kiss always gets respectable, if not big money. So what are they going to do? Say, no, we're not going to put it out. Right. I'm sure it came down to like, uh, if you don't put it out, then you're going to pay us back. Nothing hurts anybody more than saying, give me back the give money. Me money. <laughs> you know, not when there was real intent to do a great record, you know, and then as much as it, it only fell short, short to me towards the end where I felt like it could have been mixed a little better and all. But by then, you know, 
Paul was busy putting on the kiss boots, understandably, and Gene was getting sized for his, uh, you, you know, his cape, I guess. You know what I mean? <laughs> a lot of great, I mean, child, Childhood's End oh, I is love just that an song. amazing song. I yeah, mean, there's what, a lot what, of really good stuff there, and I was real proud of my involvement. And uh, obviously, there I was, like, thinking, wow, I got nine co-writes on, on the new Kiss circuit. Um, don't know if it'll ever come out. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it was really torture at times. And in the end, I have to say that, Paul always promised me, he said, like, Bruce, don't worry, it's going to come out. It will come out. You'll see. And I think the way they actually handled it and made it almost look like a bootleg made a lot of sense, actually, and that's what they did. So it eventually came out, thank God. But, uh, of course, you know, what can I say? Uh, it wasn't uh, um, it, it wasn't given the its, its chance in the sun at all, that's for sure. Bruce, what do you think of, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, what do you think of Sonic Boom and, you know, like the, the KISS lineup and the tour and, you know, kind of how Tommy and Eric are back and, uh, you know, wearing makeup and stuff? What do you think about that whole thing? Well, you know, I don't have any issue with those guys, you know, wearing, you know, KISS makeup. I, I think it would get a little ridiculous with every member if you had to introduce a new character, you know what right. I mean? Uh, and it, it, it was very clear that... Uh, there's a certain iconic connection. I think it would have been more complicated if Eric Carr was alive. What do you do? Is, it, right. is the fox now the, the drummer, or is the fox turn into the cat? Who knows, you know? But um, sadly, it's not a not a, a discussion that we could actually have in reality. Right. Um, I think both of them do a great job, obviously, and uh, I think that uh, I got to see the band in uh, in Anaheim, actually. Yeah, I saw the great pictures on your website. Yeah, yeah, and the show was terrific. I mean, you know, Kiss, you know, always in an arena is always, you know, huge and bigger than life and exciting. And they treated me great. It was great to be backstage and hang because it was the first time I actually saw Eric in makeup with the band because I did see Kiss on the Aerosmith tour, but that was Peter and Tommy, you know. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think Tommy does a really good job as as the Spaceman Ace kind of role that – would never really be that comfortable for me, to be quite honest. Because, right. You know, I kind of represent the non-makeup era, and for me to become the spaceman, I think, is is a bit of an awkward job for, for myself. Do I miss being a KISS? Absolutely. You know, I'm really proud that they move forward. Here's an opportunity where I remember when Gene was saying, like, no reason to do a record, everybody just steals music, blah, blah, which is partially true. But I always think that a band should be brave and bold and keep moving forward, you know? So I, I give uh, Paul big thumbs up for taking the uh, the band by the helm and getting in the studio and doing a record without a bunch of co-writers and and guest people ghosting as everybody else. There's no reason. I was you know really shocked and blown away and 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 and, and even jealous because uh, there was no time when I was in the band that we kept it necessarily that 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 like small, tight yeah know, and that tight about doing it. So I was really proud of the guys for doing that. I remember running into Paul in Beverly Hills, and him saying, like, yeah, we're recording, it's just us. And I said, Paul, I'm really proud of you. That's wonderful. Because, you know, you know, there's, so, there's something to be said about some of the song doctors that you want to write with, but just do it yourself. you got enough right. yeah, these guys, knowledge. Right. The, all the, you know, Paul and Gene and, and both Tommy and Eric and, and you, I mean, you guys can all write songs, so, you know, I don't know that there's a, n- a need to bring in yeah, all these outside it guys. It wasn't, and, and clearly... Um, you know, I think they did a, a really good record, especially considering that they weren't trying to go for like the the big hit single where they got to bring in you know whoever. I think that's all nonsense anyway. Right. You know, um, and and I'm real excited for the fact that there's a uh, there's a song for Tommy to sing and a song for Eric to sing. I hope to do that song with Eric and uh, ESP down the line. You know? Cool. But uh, and my only criticism is just I know a lot of the hype about Sonic Boom from Gene and Paul's mouth was that it was like a 70s record. It right. isn't. 
it doesn't have a little bit of that. Sure. You know, I mean, they're still kiss and they started the band in the seventies, but I still hear more of the eighties and the nineties in the record. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I really like, so right. I find it kind of funny. I don't know if they were trying to sell it because they're not so proud of the eighties and nineties. So they just want to present the album as a seventies record. It's Kiss, no matter what era you want to describe it right. as. Yeah, but absolutely. I don't think you need to shade it towards any any decade. You know, there's there's meaty riffs and there's catchy, you know, sing along Kiss lyrics. You know, you know, you know what the Kiss lyrics should be about. Make it right. empowering lyrics. You know what I mean? That's what that's what Kiss represents. It's not oh poor pity me, I'm sorry and sad. You know, <laughs> so they did a classic Kiss record. Yeah. You know, but it's more modern than I think the way they were presenting it. Right. But, they, they you know, was... That's up to them for how they want to hype it. But. Yeah. yeah, I love the '80s Kiss. I had a great time seeing you guys on all the tours, and you know, Animalize on, and and um, you know, I don't think that's anything for Kiss to to play down. I, I think it was a great time period, and right. you know, and I, like I said, I, I think it would have been kind of cooler to say, "Look, this is the 2000s versions of Kiss, and we're going to do an album how we sound now." Right, right, and yeah. and in many ways, that's what they, you know, what what they did it, it is how they sound now, and. Uh, whether or not they want to uh, typecast it from an era or not, it really doesn't matter. Ultimately, it's just great. They put out something new. Ace put out a new record. Then I come out with a record. I think it's a great time for Kiss, you know, fans out there to celebrate a lot of new music. And uh, what can I say? I mean, obviously, with Kiss touring with an, in support of a new record, look at the excitement it made for them on a concert, uh, you know, a tour. And then it's going to carry over to this huge success again in Europe where they never went often enough, if you know what I mean. Right. You know, they're adding all these multiple dates in Europe. So it's it's very exciting. And I'm, I applaud them in, in finally, you know, getting over that hump or fear of like, <clears throat> how do we put out a record? Because we always have those those monsters of, of the, the big successful albums, you know, kind of kind of, uh, you know, overshadowing us. I and mean, I don't think that's true. You know, I think I think. Uh, time to move forward and be creative and that's what they did hey bruce i have to ask you you mentioned michael bolton earlier who you used to play in a band with and he uh, actually did some writing with kiss uh, is michael uh, he's kind of known as i guess i would call him adult contemporary is is he really a hard rocker at heart well i mean you know originally you got to understand my experience with him and uh it's very ironic that lots of times when i'm asked about and you worked with Michael Bolton, you know, and, and they forgot that at, at one point he was totally a rocker. He was more trying to look like David Coverdale, and uh, and we were into Bad Company and Led Zeppelin, and right. and and you know we were on a bill with uh, Peter Frampton, and 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 uh, later on we played with Bob Seger. So that's certainly not adult contemporary, but I think once the blackjack thing didn't take off the way the way uh, the label hoped and everything, and he went into his corner, and I just joined probably then I probably just joined the uh, the Good Rats, just something right, that okay. gig, which uh, was a good good place for me to you know uh, keep keep in shape, shall I say, you know, but but the truth is, uh, Michael was writing like more commercial pop songs and stuff, and then realized, well, let me take a stab at this and sing one, you know, and the next thing you know. Uh, he wins a Grammy and he becomes a big star that way. You know what I mean? So, yeah, he's a rocker at heart. And I think he realized, you know, in the same way that he might have been a blue-eyed soul, you know, pop singer, he, he, you know, he, I think you know he loves Pavarotti also, right? You know, and all of a sudden right. he's doing an opera song. So yeah, I, I, I applaud him in his, uh, you know, he's always been very, uh, shall I say, aggressive and, and uh uh, he a hard worker and and very motivated, and I I've, I learned that from him as well. So 
He's, uh, you know, there's, there's a reason why he had a lot of success. Obviously, a lot of pick, people picked on him, too. <laughs> but that comes with the territory, right? Right. Bruce, speaking of being a hard worker, you are, in my opinion, maybe the most traveled rock guitar player. You are all over the place. I remember when I, I came out to L.A. and I gave you a call and uh, you were like, you called me back and said, John, I'm in Mexico. And then uh, every time I look, you're in South America or Australia and I mean, just this past weekend, you were in Myrtle Beach uh, doing a release party at the Kiss Coffee House. You're going to be at the 2010 Cleveland Kiss Expo. I mean, that is hard work, just, you know, traveling all around. And I think that's why you have had the success that you've had. Well, you know, obviously, um, I'm not saying I was built to to travel. You know, I mean, I I know it was always like, wow, there's a lot of work, you know, to do all that and you get you get used to all the tricks of the trade shall i say with traveling in the airlines et cetera, et cetera. but but to be honest uh, musicians have to take the you know the music to the people and that means traveling um the ironic thing also is that like grand funk doesn't really want to go out of the country and probably doesn't have as much opportunity out of the country being part of the kiss family means i'm even bigger in australia than i am in la means I'm bigger in Norway than I am in L.A. I'm bigger in, in, in uh, uh, parts of, uh, let's say, Japan or, or uh, South America than I am in L.A. It's kind of just being the international guy, if you get what I mean. Right, it's cool. And it is cool. I remember having lunch even with Lukather um, uh, right before I wound up asking him to be on the record, and we were talking about gigging and how hard it is in America or L.A. and New York scene, and then he he mentioned, you know, he he does these very successful tours out of the country as well in Europe and all. So um, you get used to that and you realize, hey, these people are going to pay me good money. They're going to consider me a legend. I got to go. You know what I mean? Definitely. So, uh, I'm on it at least at some place. Do I love to travel? I'm always curious about cultures and the interesting kind of, let's face it, some people never leave their backyard, you know, and, and here's I've had this incredible career of uh, going around the world many times and how many times I've been to Europe and Australia and places like that is remarkable. But but honestly, it's all about playing my music and performing from, for fans and, and uh, being appreciated. So uh, I guess, I, guess uh, I have to embrace it, shall I say. Excellent, Bruce. Bruce, well, we're going to uh, ask you for a Talking Metal ID, just saying your name and you are listening to Talking Metal. And then we're going to get into the song we were talking about earlier, Hand of the King. Okay off of BK3. Thanks so much for joining us, and whenever you're ready with the Talking Metal ID. Hi, this is Bruce Kulik, and you're listening to the best in rock, Talking Metal. Thanks very much, Bruce. And where can everybody get the record, BK3? Well, fortunately, and this is a very exciting thing for me, because this is the first time that uh, I've had proper distribution. I just bought a copy at a Best Buy in Myrtle Beach. I know it's here at the Sherman Oaks, uh, where I live in, near, near where I live in L.A., Cool. In other words, uh, it's actually distributed in places like Best Buy and Amazon. There's a whole list on my website. Is it Fontana that. who's putting it up? No, it's actually through Rocket Science. Oh, cool. Right, yeah. right. And uh, they, they dealt with the anomaly, which was obviously uh, well-received and out there. And uh, Frontiers is the rest of the world, though. Okay, so North America is Rocket Science. But still, I mean, now it's on iTunes, Amazon, um, there's a couple of places like Newberry Comics that's selling uh, some signed. I think there's a few copies left that way. I'll be offering on my website next week as well. Uh, I wanted to hold off on that a little bit so that the retailers could could reap the benefit of the uh, first couple of weeks at least, you know. 
But uh, I'm real excited because this record has real distribution. And for an independent artist, you know, it's a very hard thing to do. Cool. And Matt Larson is going to kill me because I totally know it's rocket science. And when I heard you mention Ken Gulick, that's when I start thinking yeah, Fontana. Yeah. Well, but you know, uh, yeah. And, and I did talk to Fontana people and they were very interested in a guy there, Jeff Christian, who you probably know, too. He was kind of like uh, always like giving me tips for like what to do and, and, and some of the tools I'll need to, to help support the record, like the, the making of BK3. If it wasn't for him mentioning that to me, I probably wouldn't have had that video up on my website and all over the Internet and all but uh, once Ken, uh, I was already in touch with Rocket Science, but once Ken got the job there, obviously, I was, I was obvious I was going to be there, you know. Cool. Very, very cool. Well, Bruce, thank you so much, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, no problem. You've been one of the coolest people to me my whole life. And, uh, you know, since I started going to rock concerts, thank you. Well, thank you, John. And by the way, you still got the Les Paul Jr.? Uh, yeah, I can't uh, believe uh, it. Yeah, but I still have it. If uh, if you ever want it and I decide, you know, to part with <laughs> if it. I'm ready part with it, let me know. You're and the first way, guy. What? What the heck is going on? Or if it, what is going on with Gibson Guitars? Oh, I don't know. I'm still I'm still uh, consulting for them, and okay. um, they weren't he, even at Nam. You know that? He, oh, I didn't even realize that. Oh yeah, they didn't even show up at Nam. There was like a uh, like a distributor there, but they had no booth at Nam. Nothing. Wow. You know what? I did not even know that. I yeah, I'm I'm here on the East Coast, and I know, I know. you know, and I well say hi to Jim for me. I absolutely will. I yeah. definitely will, Bruce. Thanks. And when no I you know one of these days when I'm in financial difficulty, you're going to be the first person I call. Hopefully I'll be in. I won't be in financial difficulty, so I can help you out. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Bruce. All right, man. Okay. Right now, guys, here is "Hand of the King" by Bruce Kulick from BK3. Check it out. Just one. 